Hello and welcome to episode number 97 of the Haskin Cast podcast. Whether you like it or not, I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am here with another episode. Not only am I here, I, I am beside myself, and we'll get to that in just a second first. Before I forget, I want to wish a whole hearty congratulations to my wonderful friend, Gabrielle Stone, who uh, released her audiobook version of Eat, Pray, Hashtag FML. And if you want to listen to that audiobook, I will be listening to it uh, tomorrow, actually. Uh, and if you want to check it out, go to Amazon.com, go to Audible.com and look up Gabrielle Stone. Uh, if you go to the Amazon link, you will find the, pr- I think, print, Kindle and uh, audio are there. And if you go to Audible.com, you can get the audio only. Uh, can't wait to hear it. I have not had a chance to read the book, so this will be my introduction to it. But from everything that she told me, everything that I heard on other interviews, uh, it just sounds like a a very, very fascinating journey. And if you want to hear about that and hear her thoughts, go to episode number 66 of the Haskin Cast podcast, and you can listen to Gabrielle and I talk about that and many other things, some of the film projects that she's worked on, uh, just uh, some amazing stuff. She's a very talented actress and uh, director, and uh, I really look forward to seeing more from her. So why am I beside myself? Okay, look, I will admit it. Uh, I'm, what do you call it, human? And I make mistakes. And so what's really funny is I had, uh, I was interviewing uh, Arizona film composer Bruce Bray, who is an incredibly nice guy, very talented. I really love his uh, his focus and outlook on uh, the way he approaches films. But here's what happened. So I'm talking to him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I was thinking um, we t- I talked about the 48 hour challenge uh, a bit in my book, Becoming an Indie Film Composer. So I should remember to make a reference to that episode in the show notes. And we get done talking and I, I uh, you know, do a couple of things. I go back, I start working on the show notes and I'm, and I'm like, what episode was that? And I start going back. I have a, a spreadsheet of all the episodes. So I'm searching through the spreadsheet and I'm like, I don't see it. So, of course, I hit control F and I don't find the episode where I talked about this book. I found episodes where I talked about uh, some of my albums. I still have some more of those episodes to do and uh, where I talked about my uh, books, What Happened in Vegas. But you know what I didn't find? I didn't find the episode on my book, Becoming an Indie Film Composer, which was my very first book. How I missed it, I have no idea. I remember thinking that I wanted to do the episode before Christmas. And then I know I got busy doing the third and final uh, Deadly uh, Haunted Holidays, Deadly Christmas 3 album. And I think I just kind of forgot about it. I thought I had written it down in the notes that I wanted to uh, make sure to do an episode on that. And anyway, at the end of the day, it never happened. So I am here to do that today before I air my episode with Bruce, because I thought this would be a great time to do it. Because I've... uh, got the interview with him done and I've got an interview with another composer I'm supposed to do this week and that'll be episode number 99 and then I can air episode 100 which I actually recorded in January with my special guest who shall remain nameless she has a name but uh, she shall remain nameless as far as the podcast goes until the episode airs because I want you guys all to be surprised and smiling Uh, she's absolutely wonderful it was a great interview and I really look forward to airing it but 
Bruce was fantastic. I'm sure that my guest that I'm interviewing this coming week is fantastic. But I thought before I air those, it would be a really good idea to air the episode that I never did on my book, Becoming an Indie Film Composer. So I want to take a step back because that's what we do and tell you a little bit about the origins of this book. Uh, composer uh, Mike Patty, who owns, uh, was, was the co-owner of a company called Cinesamples, who uh, make sample libraries and they use uh, live players from Hollywood orchestras and uh, they kick them in on a percentage of the profits. I love, love, love that they do that. It's a big uh, draw to wanting to use their instruments and their instruments sound fantastic. Their players are amazing. Uh, but anyway, he was telling me that there's a book that I should read called uh, The Emerging Film Composer by a gentleman named Richard Bellis. And I here's where it gets weird. I don't I didn't recognize the name right off the bat, Richard Bellis, and it didn't hit me. Actually, he even talked about it in the book and it's still the pieces did not connect. Richard Bellis won an Emmy for composing the score to the original miniseries of Stephen King's It, which I think was just two parts and uh, shown on television. It had an A-list cast of actors. I mean, Richard Benjamin uh, was uh, the lead in it. Uh, Annette O'Toole was in it. Harry Anderson from Nightcore. I mean, just a great bunch of people. John Ritter from Three's Company and Hearts of Fire. Uh, Just an amazing list of of characters. And they uh, they acted very, very well together. Um, Oh, uh, Venus from WKRP was one of the leads in it, too. Uh, uh, Tim Reed, a great actor. And... uh, that was the first film that made me want to become a film composer. I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's a a scene. I can't remember which part it was in. I want to say it was in part two, but there's a scene where uh, young Bill is flipping through a photo album and the photo album, of course, just starts flipping pages on its own because this is a Stephen King movie. Let's remember. And uh, it focuses on this picture of a circus from a long time ago. And then they actually go into the circus And the music that was playing was this really kind of beautiful yet haunting uh, circus music, kind of the kind that you would expect at an old school circus. And uh, I just I loved it. And I remember thinking how fun it would be to write music that would go along with an image like that. And so that was the first thing to pique my interest in becoming a a film composer. And I mean, there were other things that that would have uh, triggered it as well. I mean, that that scene in uh, Star Wars Episode Four when that first came out, I remember even the first time I saw it in the theater, I must have been, I want to say five, because I was born in 72. It came out in 77. And um, the scene where uh, Ben Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader and and what happens at a particular moment there, the the swell of the strings and uh, and the horns, just everything was so powerful. And I thought that music was beautiful. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar, I think, was the first thing that I actually started dissecting as far as uh, how it was put together, uh, really not knowing the history of it, knowing that it had already been recorded as a soundtrack uh, by uh, someone who would go on to be one of my favorite singers. Um, so many little components that didn't connect for a long time. In fact, I wouldn't come to find out that Ian Gillen was the original Jesus Christ on the soundtrack until well after I started following Deep Purple. And uh, and yet uh, the soundtrack to the movie of Jesus Christ Superstar was a big uh, inspiration for me. Really the first thing I started to sit down and kind of figure out, you know, break down a little bit and understand how it came to be. So those were uh, really big influences for me. And then, of course, uh, 
that was really triggered by watching that particular scene in Stephen King's It. And then, of course, I started paying more attention to that score and other scores as uh, as I would hear them. But, you know, I was still pretty young. I didn't really even know how to write music at that point. I was a drummer. I knew how to construct a song, but I didn't really know how to write music. And um, I remember uh, thinking that would be fun to do, but I, I had no idea where to start, what to do. I didn't have any chops. I didn't have any equipment, nothing. So it just kind of, you know, fell on a back burner that, you know, maybe one day will heat up and one day it won't. And uh, many years later, I had to have knee surgery and I'm uh, I'm on the couch and there's not really much I can do. My brother had rented some movies for me and one of the movies that he rented was called The Island with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. And, uh, you know, it's a futuristic movie, but the score was kind of futuristic, kind of not. Um, but I loved the music. Uh, the composer was Steve Jablonski, and he did uh, such a beautiful job on the score. And uh, I really fell in love with it. And by that time, um, I had, uh, you know, I'd become a songwriter. I had uh, a studio and uh, was really, uh, really feeling comfortable with the process of writing songs. And uh, so and I had done, I think, one 48 hour film challenge at that point or was just about to do my first one. I was just about to do the first one because uh yeah, it, it would have been like uh, a few months or maybe a year before my first film, which was uh, just a short 48-hour film challenge that I've still never seen. I'll never get over that. Maybe I will. So uh, by that time, I was like, OK, I really want to do this now. I've got the equipment. I've got some songwriting chops. I feel comfortable writing in different styles. So I kind of feel like whatever came my way, I, I could take on. And um, I saw an ad on myspace for a film that was looking for additional music and i i didn't say why their composer wasn't doing it what happened so i thought you know and the ad was a month old already but i thought you know what the hell i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna take a chance and the worst that i will happen is i never hear from them and it turned out to be a uh, a local filmmaker now myspace is worldwide it could have been anybody anywhere in the world but it turned out to be somebody who lived about 45 minutes from me and uh I wrote some music and uh, they liked it. They wanted some modifications and I did those. And then they wanted a few other pieces. I ended up writing four pieces of music for that film. And um, that was kind of the start. And then that uh, filmmaker, Paul, was hosting uh, a 48 hour film challenge. And he said, well, you should uh, you should get in on this. I'm like, well, I don't know anybody. He goes, well, come down. We're going to do a meet and greet. And uh, before the contest kicks off, you know, a week or so before and uh, give chance to people a chance to kind of connect with some teams. And I thought, okay, well, that's great. You know, my first networking event. So I go down, I'm talking to a bunch of people and it's, it's really kind of going nowhere. And uh, when it was over, I was waiting outside to say goodbye to the host. And uh, I got into this conversation with Tamara McDaniel and uh, she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a composer. And she went, oh, you're a composer. You're with us. And just like that, that's how it happened. And uh, Tamara and I talk about that a little bit on her episode of the podcast, which is one of the earlier ones. I'll have to look up the number. Um, don't remember it off the top of my head, but uh, there's some stories with her in this book as well. So uh, she's definitely tied to this podcast. But uh, that's where it started. And then we did a bunch. And then uh, I kind of stepped back from composing and did some sound design on some and, and uh, stayed on set to communicate with the composer because that was something that was uh, a challenge for me is that we didn't have anybody to communicate changes and things to me because uh, I wasn't on set. So uh, it was a great time and we did a bunch of films and some of them gained some popularity, which was nice. You get to hear yourself 
uh, your work uh, at Harkins when they do the, um, you know, the, the uh, wrap up uh, and they show all the films. And, uh, and it's a great challenge. You really get to hone your skills uh, doing these. But anyway, to get back to Mike. And so he's telling me there's this book that you should check out. Uh, and this was, um, this was before I started uh, doing any film composing. I just had wanted to do it. He goes, there's this book that you should check out called The Emerging Film Composer by Richard Bellis. And I'm reading the book. I actually was uh, scheduled to go to Vegas the day after the book arrived in the mail. And I thought, okay, well, I'll be in Vegas, but I always have some downtime. So maybe I'll start reading the book. I actually stayed in my room a good chunk of that trip and just read the book from cover to cover. And um, that was when I met a friend of mine uh, from Cirque du Soleil. And I had gone to this um, outdoor uh, concert the day before. So I just had this horrible sunburn. Anyway, a great way to meet somebody is when you're, uh, you basically look more like a tomato than a person. But I warned her ahead of time. So that was fair. And uh, but it was a cool uh, it was a cool experience reading the book. But what I thought about was, OK, everything that I've read, every book I can find, every article, everything talks about once you're in Hollywood and you're working with orchestras that are ten thousand dollars an hour and that you have to have the piano tuned if there's a piano in the room and you have to pay for that and the transportation of instruments, all this stuff. But nothing about how to get there. And I'm like, well, that's great. How do I get to Hollywood? How do I ever uh, you know, learned the the craft enough to get to the point where I am working with those orchestras. I found no resources whatsoever. So I was pretty frustrated about that. And I thought, you know what, why don't I take the experiences that I've had, the, the things that worked and the things that didn't, and put that in a book for other people? Because surely if I'm looking for this, there's got to be other people, people that don't have a starting point, people that haven't thought about uh, connecting with uh, people in 48-hour film challenges or local film groups, and they're just kind of like, I really want to do this, but I don't know how, and then they give up. And I didn't want that to happen. So I thought, well, it, at least I could put something out there that might uh, reach some people. And, uh, you know, who knows? So uh, so I, I wrote the book, and I had reached out to uh, Film Music Magazine, and they did a, uh, a little spot on their website for the book. And I think that kind of ha- helped uh, generate the initial interest in, in getting the word out. Because at this point, um, you know, for me, the internet was still kind of a new thing. You know, I was good at emails. I could find websites. But we are talking MySpace days. So uh, Facebook wasn't even a thing yet. And so we were still kind of, you know, dependent on things outside of the internet more so than we are now. And, uh, I, I, you know, I was really good at MySpace. Uh, rearranging it, you know, arranging my little top 10 friends or whatever it was, top eight friends and um, communicating very well on there. Uh, But that was pretty much what we had. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have, I mean, cell phones were barely a thing at this point. So uh, it was a different world. And um, I don't know what resources there are out there now, but the book has been through three revisions. Um, That's pretty much the end of it. And originally I had Tamara read the first version of the audiobook because I really was intimidated by doing that. I didn't like my voice. I didn't think I read well, and I thought she could do a much better job and she did a great job. But when I did the third revision, um, when I first moved to Vegas, so that would be five years ago now, uh, four and a half probably that I, I was working on the book. And Randy Rohrbach did the uh, the audio cleanup with Isotope RX for me because I was still pretty new at that. I hadn't had it very long 
didn't have a lot of skill in it, and I really wanted to get the book out there. So uh, Randy did the the uh, RX cleanup for the audiobook version that exists now, which is me. But it's not me reading the book. It's me using the book as a guideline for more of a dialogue. And so they are completely different experiences. If you get the paper copy or the Kindle copy, uh, you get one experience. And if you get the audiobook, you get a broader uh, explanation of things. Um, I don't think I, I can't remember if I read the stories or just talked about them, but either way, it's a, it's a very different story. There, there are a lot more stories uh, that I tell just in the scope of conversation. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's a different experience. And I'm, I'm very glad that uh, Tamara read it the first time around. But I'm glad that I did the, the last one because it seems it's always better when the author does it. So uh, that's pretty much the story of how the book came into existence. And it, every once in a while, I'll still get an email from somebody that uh, that said that they just read it or they just uh, referenced it somewhere or uh, they hadn't read it in a long time. They were feeling frustrated. So they read it again or they picked it up to a, to a random chapter or whatever. Um, to know that the work that I put into this did reach an audience that it, uh, occasionally hits a new audience. Um, that really means a lot to me because a lot of people said that it really helped them, uh, begin their career, that it helped them be much less frustrated and feeling like they were so isolated and alone. Um, because it, being a film composer is a very isolating job. You're not with the crew. You don't get fed. You don't get uh, all the the joy of being on set, of of you know, uh, meeting the actors and the the crew and all these people that are involved in this. Basically, you get a film, and you're alone in your studio, and you watch the film over and over again. You'll uh, interact with the director and the editor, and that's mostly it. Now, sometimes you might get called on to do some other things, like some sound design. Uh, or, uh, you know, sometimes the actors will have to come in for voiceovers and, uh, maybe you'll get to do those sessions and you'll meet the actors. But I try to make it out to set at least once during the process, if I'm brought on early enough. And that way I can get a feel of what the energy is like. I can meet the people that are involved and then they become a little more than just faces on my screen while I'm, you know, writing away, uh, which I highly suggest. And, it, and it's, it's nice to get a face to face with the director during that process, if you can, um, just, you know, really connecting with that film on a different level. Uh, I find that when I go to set, it's easier for me to connect with it when I get the film than if I don't. So that's all the, uh, the whys and the hows. What I'd like to do is kind of go through the book a little bit and uh, give you kind of an overview of the book itself. Um, I uh, worked very hard on the, uh, the cover art. I had somebody that I hired from Fiverr.com to assemble it for me because I knew nothing about that. And she found that wonderful uh, film strip that's on the cover. I had supplied the photos. And uh, I think I said something like, I want uh, like I want an orchestral instrument on the cover somewhere. And I stuck with the, the blue from the original version, which was uh, a very simple cover. Uh, and I thought I wanted something much more professional. And, um, and yeah, this, so this came out and I, I'm very happy with the way that it looks, um, nice blue background, bright, uh, yellow lettering, the film strip with some different, uh, things, the scoring stage, a mixer, sort of a home studio and, and a theater and, uh, and then the cello, uh, in the, in the lower section, um, really happy with the work that she did. And I actually hired her to do several other projects with me. Um, and then, uh, she did not do what I wanted on a project. And I kind of proofed it a little quickly 
And when I went back to her to fix it, she's like, no, it's done. And uh, I thought, you know, for all the projects that we had done together, uh, especially for something that's so simple, um, I, I really wasn't pleased with the way that she handled that. And I talked to her about it. And she's like, well, you know, you agreed to it. So too bad. And I'm like, well, that's going to be the last time we're going to do business together. And uh, and it was. And I found other people to work with that uh, I'm much happier with now. Anyway, people I think are are more creative than than she was. But I like what she did on the the projects that we did work on together. But I I'm it's really more important to me how people do business necessarily than the product. Uh, the product has to be good. But, uh, you know, if I'm going to go forward with somebody, there's so many people you can choose from. And I know tons of people in just about every facet that I could want to work with somebody in. Why work with somebody who's going to be more attitude than productive, who um, really isn't a giving partner at all? They're just, uh, you know, they're, they're willing to make changes, but uh, they're very limited in what they can do. And as I, I found out afterwards, how limited she really was in in the scope of uh, ability that she had. So, uh, you know, it all happens for a reason. And uh, I, I'm glad that uh, I had the opportunity to work with her. But I'm also glad that I've moved on to someone who I work much better with. So that uh, that was the cover. And then uh, getting into the book a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, this is the, uh, the third and final edition. So I really wanted to make sure that I packed it with as much as possible. And, you know, the, the challenge with books like this is to a certain extent, they can become outdated because I go into, you know, how to build the studio and some of the physical connections and things you can try, but the technology is moving so fast that some of it becomes outdated. And I know, uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to them, at NAM this year, but I really wanted to, and I haven't had a chance to research it yet, but MIDI 2.0 is coming out. And I've heard that uh, we're no longer limited to 16 tracks, that it's going to be like 256 or something crazy like that. So uh, I don't know how big your template is. I've seen templates from some guys, like uh, I saw a demonstration the first year at NAM with uh, Danny Elfman's uh, orchestral template, and it's it's huge. I mean, it's it's got to be at least 150 tracks, if not more. Uh, very, very big stuff. So uh, I think it'll definitely be beneficial. Um, I don't know how much is going to be retrograded to fit it. Uh, I would imagine it's more going to be things that are created uh, now and going forward that are going to integrate uh, with uh, more than the 16 available channels that we've worked with up to this point. But it's going to be interesting to see. I'm, I'm very curious to uh, to see how that all plays out. So uh, so things do become a little bit outdated as far as the the gear and all of that. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the most part, uh, the networking, how to build your studio, a lot of those basics are going to stay the same for, uh, forever really. And, uh, and that's okay. So, uh, the first chapter in the book is why become an indie composer. And what I really do in this chapter is I just talk about, you know, what's, uh, what's good, what's easy, what the challenges are, what, uh, is difficult, what, can make you question whether you want to do this and, and kind of help you maybe decide, okay, you know what, now that I'm seeing some of the reality of this, as opposed to how great it looks on the outside, maybe this isn't the right thing for me. Uh, maybe I, I don't want to invest in it and I'll just uh, make an album or, or do whatever. Uh, so this book kind of quali or this uh, chapter kind of qualifies 
whether uh, being a, an indie composer is a good thing for you, because especially in the beginning, uh, you know, you're you're not getting paid for a lot of these gigs. Uh, Richard Bell has talked about that a lot in his book about make sure you get paid something, even if it's, you know, a pound of coffee or dinner or something, make sure that you're getting some value out of this. And uh, I'm sorry, but a resume credit just isn't enough. If the film has no budget, the credit may not mean a whole lot anyway. It's just good to see that you're getting hired for projects that people are coming to you and saying, hey, I trust you to work on my film. But apart from that, a lot of these shorts, they they add up quickly, but a lot of them aren't even, uh, they don't even qualify for IMDb. So you have to keep that in mind. You've got to get something out of this if you're going to put the time in. And uh, a resume credit alone is, uh, personally, I don't think it's enough. So in chapter two, I talk a lot about gear, uh, what kind of gear that you might need. And a lot of that stuff has really stayed the same. I mean, new uh, VST virtual instruments have come out, but uh, they're, they're mentioned in here. And so it's all just about what's current, what's hot on the market. Um, you know, at the time I had the uh, East-West Silver, uh, there was like the Silver Plus, or I can't remember what it's called, but there was the Silver Edition and then there was the Extended Silver Edition. And I had the Extended Silver Edition when I started composing. It gives you enough tools to to really be able to work a full orchestra, but not all the articulations, like there's not a lot of effects and runs and things like that. Uh, so you have to do a lot more work to make it sound good. But even the Silver Orchestra I thought was pretty cool, and I was uh, really excited to use that on some films. As I started to uh, get into films, I realized that I needed to upgrade to the gold, and East-West had a sale, so I did the uh, the Gold Plus edition. And now I'm working with the Platinum uh, Plus Orchestra. So I've got the biggest one that they have in that series. And it really does encompass pretty much everything you need. I mean, if you if your score is cello heavy, you may want to get a cello instrument. Um, the uh, the guys over at Cine Samples did a, a great job recording Tina Guo, who is an amazing cellist and songwriter. And uh, that's a, a real, actually really affordable one. So if you're going to be doing a lot of cello heavy music, I would recommend that. Or uh, if you can hire Tina for a session uh, or you can buy the instrument and uh, and then you can work with her 24-7. So, uh, you know, the the gear, the, an 88-note MIDI keyboard is an 88-note MIDI keyboard. I would recommend that for composing for film because you don't want to have to transpose uh you know, especially working with an orchestra, I would imagine it's difficult to work with like a 49 or a 60, even a 61 note keyboard. Uh, you're really going to want that full range for the dynamics of the instrument. So I would recommend an 88 note keyboard weighted or non-weighted is up to you. But remember that you're probably going to be recording drums on it. You're probably going to be recording a lot of rhythmic stuff. So uh, decide whether weighted or semi-weighted or not weighted at all uh, is going to be kind of what you need. I think mine are semi-weighted. They do have a little bit of a weight to them, but they're fairly light. And I'm using, uh, you know, just an, an M Auto uh, M Audio 88 note key station. I got it for 200 bucks, and I, I've had it for years, and it's worked uh, beautifully well. So, uh, moving into chapter three, this is opportunities to hone your skills, and this is really giving you ideas of how to practice, what kind of things that you can do to work on learning how to write for film, because it's a completely different entity than songwriting. Uh, for one, you have to match visuals. So your timings a lot of time have to be right on uh, with the visuals. And it's not like the visuals were recorded to a tempo track 
and everything's just going to fall in line. If you turn your your uh, metronome to 105, everything's going to fall right on the beat. It doesn't work that way. So you have to really learn how to uh, play sound in the field as as far as what you want. So I typically do, uh, you know, my midied uh, music that I'll bounce and mix as audio later, and then I'll have a separate track that is just the. Um, you know, the sort of sound design or, or any incidental sounds that I have to put in uh, if I'm recording a song that uh, needs to sound live because they're in a restaurant and there's a live band playing or something like that. Um, you know, you have to, to work all those in. And so uh, I usually do that stuff on a separate track. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's all... It, every component is vital. Absolutely every component is vital. And if you're scoring to film versus just songwriting, the timing becomes so much more crucial than it does in a song. In a song, it just has to be on the beat. In a visual, it has to match the screen. I remember uh, doing a film where there was a bowl of sugar and they were dropping berries into the bowl of sugar. And I wanted to create um, something for each berry and and sort of the uh, the idea of the sugar flying out of the bowl with a with a little bit of reverb, and really I I don't know how many hours I spent trying to get each berry to have its own sound, to line it up to where it sounds exactly where it's supposed to be, and uh, it, it was probably the most challenging scene I've ever scored in a film to this day. But uh, but again, like you can't do that with just putting the metronome on and expecting everything is going to be uh, right on the beat. So that's definitely a skill that you want to learn. Uh, one thing that I talk about in the book is the idea, and I talked to Bruce about this too, is the idea of uh, you know downloading contest films. But don't worry about the contest; just use the films to learn how to score. It doesn't even matter if the contest was ten years ago. Basically, what you want is the video footage and the practice and learning things like uh, tempo mapping and things so that you make sure that your hits are on uh, schedule. Then uh, those are things that you're going to need to practice and you're going to need to get really comfortable with. All, all very, very important stuff that uh, I, I can't, uh, I, I can't underline enough how vital it is to really be comfortable with film, really before you go out and you start interacting and trying to drum up business, trying to get a, a reputation going, because you can kill your reputation very quickly if you're not actually good at it. So take some time, work with some contest videos, really hone your skills, hone your skills, hone your skills. Well, I mean, you will be home. Um, work with, uh, before you start working with, uh, with crews for like 45, uh, 48 hour film challenges. Uh, sometimes there's 24 hours, sometimes there's 72, but, uh, you really want to know what you're doing before you start interacting and showing off what you can do, because you can kill relationships very, very quickly if you're not at least reasonably comfortable with, with whatever might be thrown at you. So I highly recommend that. Uh, and then of course, you know, go start going to the meetups once you're ready and uh, and meet some people and see what kind of uh, work you can drum up. But you also kind of have to be ready for anything because you could get a country and Western, you could get an action film, you could get a horror film, uh, a comedy, uh, you know, a drama, whatever. So you kind of have to be ready to take on whatever it is that's thrown at you, which is why I suggest really taking the time and learning the craft uh, hands on you know, before you start doing anything else. And of course, there's always good tutorials on YouTube. If you have any questions, you can always write me at scott at scotthaskin.com. And, uh, and I'm happy to help out any way that I possibly can. So the next phase of being a great film composer in, uh, in the indie world, 
not so much in the Hollywood world, because in the Hollywood world, um, sometimes you have to do your stems, sometimes you don't have to do them, and other people do them for you. But really, you want to control the sound of the score. So most likely, you're probably going to do at least some mix, uh, even if it's as you're writing, which is what I tend to do. I tend to do a lot of that while I'm writing. And, uh, but part of that is being a good audio engineer, like really knowing how to mix the music because you're probably going to be the one doing it for an independent film. Uh, you may also have to do the mastering of the audio. A lot of times the editors, uh, they will just set the volume of the song and, uh, make it rise and dip where they need to, to fit with the film. Um, but, uh, so you, if you want your music to be represented well, if you want it to be, to be accepted into the film, let alone uh, enjoyed, then you have to learn how to be a pretty good audio engineer and you have to learn how to do it quickly. Because if you're doing, let's say, a 48-hour film challenge, uh, you have to write all that quickly enough, but you also have to uh, you know, bounce it all down to audio. You have to mix the tracks. You have to do any of the effects. Then you have to export it for mastering and do the mastering. So there's a lot that's involved. So really, 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 really be comfortable with how uh, how well you work as an audio engineer. And the more that you can learn and the quicker that you can produce, the more that people will come back to you and uh, and want to hire you for their film. Chapter five is called Learn the Law. Yes, learn the law. And a couple of very quick points I'll bring up to you are obviously, you know, you can't use other people's music without their permission, even if you think you're getting away with it in an indie film. The whole point of a filmmaker making a film is to be seen. So they're going to want to get that film out to as many people as possible. And if someone hears that and they go, well, wait a minute, I didn't see any rights in the credits. I didn't, uh, I don't know if they got a license for this and they start researching it. Uh, you can kill your career even in an independent film that you think is only going to be seen by five people. So always, always, always make sure that you're getting whatever clearances that you need. Make sure that you understand the contract that you're signing with the, the film company or with the director. Very important. And uh, that's that's a very, very solid advice. The other thing is to know the... Um, the legalities of the instruments that you're using, whether they're uh, public domain, whether you can only use them for original compositions and not covers, uh, whether the sounds themselves are free and clear so that you can use those uh, those sounds in, in projects. Uh, some of them require two or more sounds to be played at all times uh, or anytime one sound is being played to be accompanied by another or, or more sounds. Um, because they don't want people being able to strip those sounds and make their own library out of it, which, you know, that's pretty understandable. So the law is a very, very important uh, component of becoming a, a, or of being a film composer in any capacity. Um, chapter six, I talk about demo reels. Demo reels are kind of a, a little bit different now. I mean, a lot of people just showcase pieces online. Uh, actors still have uh, like a video demo reel. And I talk about the difference between audio samples and a demo reel here in this chapter. So uh, definitely something that you may want to consider how to best approach because you want to put, you want to showcase so that people that you don't know can find you on the web or wherever. Uh, but you also want to have samples up for people to check out whether they're like, you know, I could go with this guy or that guy and, you know, show them what you can do and uh, make sure that obviously they sound as good as they can. So uh, in, in, the course of this chapter, uh, having a demo reel can be helpful, but ultimately with the way things are going now, you really have to decide what is it that that director wants to hear or that music supervisor wants to hear. 
So in chapter seven, I talk about finding projects to work on. And this is something that Bruce and I will talk about in the podcast that is coming up with him. Uh, there's many, many different ways to do it. And uh, of course, you know, like I was saying in the uh, in the intro, the meet and greets with, uh, you know, with with different people in the industry are very, very vital. Uh, mixers, red carpet events can be helpful. Those kind of things. Um, if you really want to push it, funerals. But that's only if you really want to push it. In chapter eight, I talk about contests. Um, really have kind of a back and forth feeling on contests and and uh, whether they're beneficial or not. But as I said earlier, they are a great place to obtain videos to work on. You can't you can strip uh, you know videos for movies, but they probably already have music in it, or uh, you know you uh, you're more familiar with the scene, so you might already have something preconceived in your head, and you're not really writing to the new piece. You're kind of using what you already had in mind. So it's it's harder to judge yourself if you're using pieces that you've never seen before that you don't have milk or don't have milk don't have uh, you know any uh, audio in them as far as uh, music but they can still have the dialogue then that's fine uh, it gives you something to practice to and really seeing if you have the skill to take a, a, something that has nothing in it that's just a blank slate and create all the emotion and all the uh, action that needs to go with that scene. So uh, contests can be very uh, helpful for that. If you want your music judged, um, you can certainly do use contests for that. But uh, keep in mind that the context of the contest is very important. If the, the context is just uh, songwriting or sound design or, or you know, general emotion, then you really need to be aware of what they're looking for because the feedback that you receive on your piece might not mean anything depending on what it is that they're going for in the, the feedback. If they're, you know, trying to, to get you to be more um, songwriting oriented, then it may not help you. If they're trying to help you with where this would fit in a film, that might help you a little bit more. So uh, use your discretion. Chapter nine is called, You Found a Film, Now What? And this deals with how to uh, get started with your film. You know, you've got templates to set up, you've got uh, scratch tracks to do, you've got themes to develop. Now, sometimes when the director uh, will tell you the story ahead of time, I might start developing themes in my head. But you have to remember that anything is subject to change. The uh, type of score, they might tell you up front, well, we really want something Middle Eastern for this. And then they might decide that industrial music works better. So you have to be ready to change that on a dime and, and not really solidify anything until you get to that stage. The director's approved main themes. Now you can start using those as a sketch pad to make the uh, the song or the piece for the film. Um, you know, very, very important things to think about when you're first starting. Um but typically what's going to happen before you put anything down to paper or to computer anyway is you're going to do your first spotting session. Now, the spotting session is where you and the director, sometimes the editor or producer, will sit down and watch the film and talk about where you need music. And one thing that I started doing uh, that I wish I had started from the beginning was instead of talking about instrumentation, instead of saying, well, what kind of music are you feeling here? Talk about the emotion of the scene. Talk about what's going on. Um because ultimately what your job is to do in a film is to enhance the emotion, whether it be anticipation, whether it be that romantic interlude, whether it be the killer chasing you down the alley, your job is to enhance that emotion for the film. So what helps is if you have uh, the ability to spot the session and understand what it is that the director is seeing when they watch that film and what they want you to make them feel 
when they listen to the score. So those spotting sessions are very important. They also help you not miss scenes or misinterpret scenes. Um, that has happened. So uh, this, the first spotting session is incredibly important, and you really need to take copious notes. I wouldn't worry so much about the writing side of it as just learning the film, really learning what the director wants, and making time code notes uh, as far as like what you were talking about and where. Chapter 11 is organization. Um, that teaches you how to set yourself up for success, uh, you know, having... Um, having templates, having your ducks in a row, taking care of all your financials and things that will distract you from working on the film. Uh, whether you're one of those uh, composers that can just sit there and work for hours or a composer that needs to get up and move around quite a bit, um, you know, the organization of that will definitely help you make this a successful project from your standpoint. Chapter 12 is the second spotting session. Now, this is after you've done all the music for the film and the editor has placed the music in the film and you sit down with the editor and the director and you watch the film again and you're going to make sure that you hit all the cues, that they like the instrumentation. Even if they've approved the themes before, they may not like the way you've developed them for the for the introduction to the second spotting session. So it's a it's a vital time to make corrections to everything that director isn't happy with so that you can complete your, your work in this film. Chapter 13 is called Building Your Cue Library. Um, I don't care how many films you work on. I don't care how long you've been doing this, how good you are. You're going to get cues rejected and you're going to have to rewrite them. But what do you do with a perfectly good piece of music just because it was rejected from a film? Do you throw it away? No, of course not. You're not going to throw it away. You're going to save it. Maybe you're going to develop that into a song. Maybe times when you are stuck for ideas, you might uh, pull one of these bad boys out of the box and uh, start working on it because it inspired you at one point. Maybe it'll jump you back into inspiration. Um, maybe you'll have a completely different vision or different relationship for it. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good place to store all these cues that get rejected, that need to be modified, whatever the case um, when you get away from them and you come back to them and you're not associating those cues with the film anymore, uh, you might see a whole new direction for that piece of music. So having a cue library is always good. Plus, there are times when you might get called and said, hey, uh, I've got a client that needs something for a commercial. It's this and this and this. And you can look through your cue library and maybe you have something that would fit that bill or close to that bill that you can modify quickly. Wow, we are flying through this book. Chapter Now, obviously, I'm just giving you the basic overview of what's in each chapter. Um, there's much, much more uh, that, that uh, you'll definitely want to check out. But just for the purposes of the overview of the book, uh, that's what I'm going with now. Uh, speaking of overviews, chapter 40, 14 is Other Opportunities. So this takes uh, takes a, a vision of what else you can do with your studio, what else you can do with those skills that you've built to kind of help bring money into the studio, help you gain partnerships and a little bit of a relationship building with, with that. So definitely a good, uh, a good thing to keep in your mind when you have downtime. Uh, obviously you want to be writing as much as possible, but you also have to have projects to write for. And, uh, you know, when I was, uh, doing a lot of audiobook editing, I would do the musical intros for the audiobooks as well. Uh, I did some, uh, when, when I would do the editing, sometimes I was the voice uh, as well. So it just depends on uh, what opportunities are out there for you. But that's just an example. There's much more than voice over an audiobook. But uh, but yeah, use those skills and uh, expand your reputa reputation, expand the uh, p amount of people that you know, and how good your reputation is. So that's pretty vital to some success. 
So chapter 15 is called The Next Step, and it really deals with sort of, uh, you know, career building after you've done some films and how to kind of take it to the next level. Uh, hopefully at some point you'll make it to Hollywood. You'll be on that big scoring stage with, uh, you know, the, the orchestra in the, in the next room, or, you know, maybe recording some crazy voiceovers in the booth. And I really hope that you make it because if that's your dream, if you love doing it, then that's ultimately where you want to be. So chapter 16 is just kind of a wrap up in the book. You know, that, uh, that, that thanks for listening. I wish you the best and, uh, you know, hang in there, keep at it sort of thing. Um, and then we get into some really fun stories in chapter 17 and chapter 18, which was, uh, chapter 18 was, uh, look back at my time in Hollywood, what I liked and what I didn't like about it. And uh, I did not have the best experience there, but uh, I think some of that had to do with me and some of that had to do with the situations that uh, I found myself in. But I talk about that in that chapter and um, it's pretty honest. You know, I, I have to say that there are people that are cut out to live in a place like Hollywood, but there are also people who are not cut out to live in a place like Hollywood. And this uh, this world is it can be very, very difficult, very tough there you have to have a certain, it's not a connection to it. It's not a love for what you're doing. I mean, you certainly have to love what you're doing if you're going to put up with, with that, but it's really more of a, uh, I can't think of anything else I want to do with my life kind of thing. But I don't want anybody to be sour on Hollywood just because of my experience. If that is where you want to be, go, go check it out. Go out there and, and meet with people and talk to them, uh, people that are in the business and talk to them about how they like living there, how they feel about uh, the areas, how they feel about what goes on in Hollywood, uh, you know, how they feel about red carpet events and meets, meets and things like that. There's so many things that you could talk to them about, but use that opportunity to really find out what you're getting into before you get into it. Because I can honestly say one piece of advice is going out there without any connections is going to be a very, very uphill battle. And when you're paying a lot of money for your place to live, for your fuel uh, and everything else, you definitely want to make sure that you're going to get the most bang for your buck. So really plan ahead, make relationships that are with people that are out there already, and that will help you decide whether you want to move or not. Chapter 20 was a new addition for, uh, as was uh, chapter 19 in Hollywood, because when I first wrote the book, I hadn't moved there yet. Wasn't even thinking about moving there yet. Uh, but uh, so chapter 20 is a final, final word. And uh, it really just uh, kind of sums up how I felt after the Hollywood experience once I was out of there in Vegas and kind of could look at it a, a little bit objectively. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it was a nice way to end the book, except that I didn't end the book there. I take that back. I skipped over it. Chapter 19 was more stories, which were all stories that I added after uh, my move to L.A. And then uh, chapter 20 is the final, final word where I talk about, um, you know, kind of how I feel, my wrap up, my thanks and uh, my my wishes for you all. It was uh, it was an amazing journey writing this book. And it's, it's interesting to see how much things have changed between the time that I uh, wrote the book, between that, the time I did the uh, third revision and, uh, and, even, and now even because now it's another four and a half years later. Um, there are a couple of uh, takeaways in the book. There is uh, a copy of my sample patch list, which is any piece of music that I write. 
Uh, I create a patch list so that if I ever have to refer to anything, go back to it, go, hey, what was that sound I used in that one song? Um, I can easily pull that up. And uh, there, there is a copy of that in the book. And there is also a copy of my uh, cue sheet, which is the uh, sort of uh, spreadsheet that I use as I'm working on a film. I have a, a, a cue sheet that uh, lists all of the cues that are in the film, when they start, what the scene is, who's in it, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, I've modified it a little bit as I've gone, but if either uh, if you guys want a copy of either of those, uh, I can send you the Excel sheets. Just drop me a line at scott at scotthaskin.com and let me know that that's what you want. And I will happily send over blank copies of them. You can feel free to modify. They're not copywritten. They're really pretty much standard. Uh, just what works for me especially that patch list. I've actually been doing patch lists since I started writing music, since I first got my uh, Korg sequencer back in the 90s. And uh, I'm very much an archivist. My roommate at the time even said it. And uh, I like to have things very orderly, very tidy, which you'll see in the organization section. And uh, and so uh, the patch list really helps me do that. Uh, I, I don't think there's a there's been maybe one or two that got lost in the shuffle where I had lines that I never wrote down what I had used. And those still kind of haunt me to this day, being the organizational uh, archivist guy that I am. So uh, those sheets are available. Uh, like I said, you can just uh, send me an email at scott at scotthaskin.com and I will happily send those over to you. Uh, that's pretty much the book, guys. So thank you very much for hanging out with me for a while while we uh, discuss it. And uh, I've got my episode with uh, with Bruce Bray will be coming up soon. Then my other episode with another composer, which I'm not going to say because I haven't recorded it yet. And then, of course, my episode 100, uh, after which I'll be taking a short break. I've got some other people scheduled, so I'll be peppering in episodes as I'm able to do those interviews. I don't want to hold those back at all. And uh, But I've got so many uh, composing projects to do right now and some work on, on my book and the third and final Vegas book is coming along uh, fairly well now that I've been able to get back out on the strip at least once a week. Uh, just the things I hear still astound me and I could live to be 412 and I will still be finding new things to uh, to amuse uh, people with. So, uh, so those are the things that are going on. I don't know how long the break will be. I'm hoping not more than a month. Uh, but like I said, if uh, the scheduling of some of these interviews come through, what I'm really waiting on is I'm waiting on artists to release their products, uh, their projects. Some of them uh, are coming up soon. Some of them are unknown dates. And uh, I try to release the podcast interview with them in conjunction with the release of the product so that I can put the link in the show notes. And if you guys are into it, you can just click on there and buy it right away before you forget uh, so many people, once they've, uh, you know, had an interest in a product, but if they don't get it right away, they tend to forget it and move on to the next thing. So I really like to wait until that stuff is available. Uh, hopefully that's uh, of a big help to my guests as well. And sometimes we do the interview way early and maybe I'll bring them back on at the time of release. Who knows? It, it's, uh, it all depends on the scheduling. Who responds? Uh, a lot of times people don't respond when I reach out to them to be a guest on the show. Uh, so it's really, really difficult to schedule. So I'll be peppering episodes in as I get them that coincide with the, the, uh, timings of releases and, uh, maybe some other ones if I have time to edit them and, and all that stuff. But, uh, the other thing I want to tell you guys about is I've done, uh, I've started the walkthrough videos. I have done one for IDC, the Audionamics instant dialogue cleaner. I'm waiting for them to approve it, uh, before I can post it on my YouTube channel. 
Uh, but that will be up hopefully soon. And then I also just finished a three-part video series walkthrough of Eduardo Terralante's new uh, virtual instrument, Nada, which is a meditation instrument. And the sounds on this thing are gorgeous and the quality is just top-notch. Everything you would expect out of Eduardo. And if you've ever met him, uh, if you've ever worked with one of his libraries, you absolutely see the quality that he puts into it and how hard he works, which is why he does about one a year, because uh, it takes a, a full year to do all the recordings, to schedule everybody to come in. Uh, there's so much to it. So uh, definitely check those out. Those are on my YouTube page. I'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, thank you guys. Please leave uh, leave feedback, leave um, uh, a rating on Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating would be awesome. Four-star rating would be great. Three-star rating's cool. Uh, if your rating is one star, if that's what you really think, then give me one star. I'd rather have the truth. So do that if you would. Um, don't have a lot of ratings on Apple Podcasts, so uh, please feel free to write a few words if the podcast makes you happy, if it affects you, if you've learned anything from it. Help me spread that word, and that is a big uh, difference maker in the way to do it. Uh, also, uh, iTunes, Podbean, uh, any of those Spotify, any of those places where you happen to listen to the show. So thank you guys for joining me. I will be back. Uh, this is a special Saturday episode, so I will be back on Wednesday with uh, a more Haskin Cast podcast. In the meantime, guys, the link to the book, the uh, Kindle, the physical copy, and the audiobook version are all uh, listed in the show notes. So check that out. Uh, send it to a friend if you think that uh, it's something that might help them. But any any composer that's starting off in their career, any composer that's been doing it for a while that needs maybe a refresher or some fresh angles to try and build their business, uh, check it out. And uh, hopefully you'll find some value in it. It was certainly a lot of fun to write. And judging just by the number of letters and things that I've gotten from people, it's it's done its thing. It's It's helped a lot of people. And I'm very, very grateful for the people that gave it a chance, for the people that uh, stayed with it until the end for the people that learned from it. Uh, thank you so much. And, uh, that, uh, you know, what's the point of creating something if there's no one there to experience it? Thank you guys. Cheers. Cheers.